most left open one than we've had. Uh, so you'll have the questions, one, two, three. Are there four questions on there, Sandy? Is there four on that one there? Is there four, Ginger? Okay. And you see the big space underneath. I really hope that you exercise your opportunity to not just use this page, but to have a journal and answer the questions with only one witness, and that's the Holy Spirit of God in your heart. Now, if you'll do that, I promise you that this one lesson will bear more fruit than the other three lessons that we've had, all right, because of the material. Now, the third piece that you have is basically uh, a help or a guide in establishing your own devotional time with the Lord. A lot of people struggle with that, and I, I did for years and years and years. And a lot of people struggle with the idea of what's the Bible talk, what does it mean when it talks about meditating on the Word of the, of the Lord, uh, uh, meditating on the Word of God? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. When I mused, the Bible talks about the importance of meditation. And uh, it's not the, you know, sitting in a corner and om, folding your legs, you know, and doing that kind of stuff. But it's rather, rather, an old preacher used to say it's like, it's like a cow that regurgitates his cud. It is taking uh, what you've read and going over it and going over it and then asking God to speak to you. And it really is just a guide to help you establish that. If you've never had an established um if you've never had an established devotional time, then that's really just to help you. So what's my job? My job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I hope that every time the Bible's opened here in this pulpit that you're taught something. But I also hope in times like these that I can give you tools that you'll be able to go home with, put in your tool belt, and say because of the opportunity that I have now, I can better navigate, not just life, but I can become a more Christ-like Christian because that's what we learned last week is the goal is that arete, it's that, it's that pursuit for Christ-like excellence, and that's the whole idea behind this. Now, you'll understand the, the service tonight even better, because to our effort to become Christ-likeness, the first thing we add is the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and why those two are so greatly connected. So I wanted to put those into your hands and kind of uh, let you know how to work it. So the blank page is for the uh, session, and then one is for the other two are for you when you go home. All right. And by the way, don't hesitate to either call or send me an email and say, "Hey, I had this thought, you know, and and uh, this is what the Lord spoke to me about, and what what are some other verses or something like that." If you need help like that, man, please don't hesitate to call, and uh, and I'll try to help you right through what you need uh, to have and equip your life. All right. So it's good to be here tonight. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sin. We thank you that salvation is freely given and freely received. We're thankful that nothing can ever change the way that you love us. We thank, we're thankful, God, that you always deal with us through that filter of love, uh, Lord, which the Bible says you are love. And so we're thankful for that. We're thankful for your holy word tonight as we open it. I pray that you would speak to every single heart. I pray that you would help us to have understanding. God, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And then, God, teach us to take what we hear and to apply it. Now, God, you and I both know that the spiritual state of most Christians today is in question because of the pandemic. They've been separated from you. They've been separated from your flock. They've been separated from uh, fellowship. And, uh, Lord, we're, we want to pray tonight and ask that you would revive your people. As the psalmist said, cause your face to shine on us again. Wilt thou not revive us again, O Lord? Wilt thou not teach us to observe thy ways so that we may keep them unto the end? And I pray to that 
Lord, for that purpose, that you would be glorified. I pray that you bless the Bible study tonight in our hearts and in our lives. And then, Lord, as we go home, help us to uh, just to mull it over, over and over and over again, and to think on ways we can become more like our Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, let's watch our video. Well, this is session four, cultivating knowledge. We need to add to that virtue, to that arete, knowledge. Just recently, a friend of our family's gave us a GPS receiver for our automobile. That is an amazing little piece of equipment. Um, we've made we've uh, made a couple of trips with it and found things that we would have never found. Uh, without that little thing. My wife especially likes it when she goes to showers in town here because you get all these addresses around town. You've never been in that part of town and all she has to do is punch in that address and it takes her right there and she doesn't have to figure out all these maps and try to try to do all of that. It's a wonderful thing. That, uh, that little receiver uh, triangulates its position. It knows where it is by taking readings off three or four satellites that are orbiting 10,000 miles above the Earth's surface. And by triangulating off those satellites, it can figure out where it is. And with that map software in there, it can tell you where you are. Well, all navigation, from the most primitive, using the stars and the sun or the shoreline, or even depth sounding, is taking a reference from some external point. Just like that GPS is, is finding out where it is by referencing some external points. Well, if we're going to become like Christ, we're going to have to navigate our spiritual lives from an external reference point. Not from what we're feeling in our own hearts or from our own experience. What we must do once our heart is being captured for Christ now we must add knowledge, and that is inform our hearts about Christ. We've decided when we said we're going to add arete, we're going to add that purposefulness to become like Christ, and we're going to cultivate that. Well, if we're going to become like Christ, we've got to find out what he's really like. So we've got to add some knowledge. And most commentators agree that the word knowledge here, and it's, it's gnosis, but the word is used here in this context not about the broad knowledge of the world and what's going on in the news and all of that kind of thing, but specifically about the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of Christ, as is revealed in the Scriptures, is the only reliable external reference point for how we should live. It is. This is why Peter said that God has given unto us all things that pertain to eternal life and godliness in this life through the knowledge of Him, this external reference point. That's why I've defined this knowledge on your chart as a God-taught understanding of the person, the work, and the ways of Jesus Christ. And folks, a person who does not pursue that knowledge and does not act upon that knowledge will increasingly become more like Proverbs' fool. Jesus was very clear about this. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, He gave what really seems like an invitation. 
in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. And here's what he said. Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, hearing and doing, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. It's stable because it is living by the words of Jesus Christ, what he has said and what he is like. But then notice what he says about a person who hears them and does not do them. He says, And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, a fool, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Folks, a believer who neglects the consistent reading and studying of his Bible and neglects the regular preaching of God's Word in a local assembly will not make it. I got a phone call from a lady. She and her husband graduated from uh, Bob Jones back in the early 80s. And I got a phone call from her recently, and she said, my husband just left me, and I need some help. And I said, what, what pastor, what, what, where do you go to church? She said, my husband and I weren't really serious about things in college. And when we got married and got out in college, we just poured our lives into our careers and we haven't been in church since we left school. They're not going to make it. And they're not making it. And she said, God has used it to get my attention. And God is really plowing deep in her life and she's responding to God. But she tried to save her life. She tried to do what she wanted to do and she's losing everything she thought was important. Jesus said, you have to hear these words of mine and you have to do them. And you know, it is this failure to add knowledge to virtue which explains why many people do make decisions of dedication and consecration to Christ and they don't last. Because they don't shore up that commitment to Christ with the knowledge about Christ and His ways and His works. That would be like a fellow saying, I want to farm, I'm committed to that. And he puts down the money and he goes out there, but he doesn't know a thing about it and he doesn't do anything. The whole thing's going to go downhill and our spiritual lives is, uh, will do as well. We must be hearing the words of God daily. And we must be hearing the preaching of God's word on a regular basis. That is the way God set it up. That's not just my idea. That's not just some preacher's idea. That's what God says it would take to be stable. In his word. And then we have to be obeying his words. And you know, hearing the words of God requires humility, doesn't it? We've got to say, you know, I don't know what to do, but God does. I think sometimes that what I have to do is more important, but God says his word is. I'm going to humble myself under that. It takes humility to hear God's word, and it takes humility to do it. Because we have our own ideas about how things ought to work. And humility is at the heart of all of our growth in Christ's likeness. This is what gives us. It is the knowledge of Christ and his works and his ways that gives us a biblical worldview. 
Let's talk about worldview for just a moment. A worldview is a conceptual framework for thought and action. It helps us understand who we are, explains where we have come from, tells us where we are going, declares to us what is good and what is evil, dictates how we should act, and prescribes to us what is true and what is false. In short, it helps us make sense out of our world and gives meaning and direction to our existence and our morals. So a worldview views everything about the world through a certain lens. Well, a biblical worldview views everything in the world through the perspective of what Jesus Christ is like and what he has said and what he has done. He tells us what is important and what is not important. I think one of the most important things we can learn from the Word is the distinction between what is eternal and what is temporal. In fact, I believe that almost every error in Christian living and character stems from either ignorance of or disobedience to the divine priority of the eternal over the temporal. There's a painting that I love to look at. It hangs in a papal library in the Vatican. It is by Raphael, and it is called The School of Athens. And in this painting, on this portico of this school, are assembled many important Greek figures. Alexander the Great is here, Diogenes is here, Pythagoras is here, many, many other philosophers and scientists of those days, and some politicians, and some playwrights. But I want to call your attention to the two men that are coming through the arch in the back of that picture, in the center of that picture. These two men are Plato on the left and Aristotle on the right. And I want you to notice that Plato has his hand pointed up. And that is to capture, Raphael was capturing the idea of Plato's, that significance and meaning in life is found in understanding the universals. He called them the forms that lie behind everything in the world that we see. Aristotle, his disciple, his protege, disagreed with him. And you see Aristotle's hand sweeping out and saying, no, the significance and real meaning is found in the particulars, the things that you can see and the things that you can handle and the things that we can examine. And virtually every philosophy since that time has been arguing over which one of these, the universals or the particulars, has greater priority or how do they interact. It's a very important thing for us to understand. The way God couches this argument, instead of using the words universals and particulars, he calls them eternal matters and temporal matters. And a man's understanding of how the eternal, that is the universals and the temporals or the particulars, relate together and which one gets priority will determine whether or not he functions in this world with wisdom, with Christ-likeness. Our culture, as you know, is not known for its wisdom. And the reason for that is because a major part of the puzzle is missing. The world does not acknowledge eternal, 
universal matters. Just as an example of how these come out in so many passages of Scripture, look at 1 Corinthians 10.31, a passage that most of us know by heart. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now, what I want you to see on that is that whatsoever you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, those are the particulars. Those are the things we do. Those are the temporal matters. And those are to be subordinated to the eternal universals, the glory of God. God sets up a divine priority here. Particulars are always subordinate to universals. Temporal matters are always subordinate to eternal matters. And a person to have a biblical worldview must see that in everything he does. So ask yourself, when I suffer, what is more real to me? My pain? And I'm not minimizing the pain. Some of us in this assembly have experienced some excruciating pain. And I don't minimize that for a moment. But when we are suffering, folks, is the temporal pain more real to us or the eternal purposes of God through that suffering? What is more real? You might say, you've got to be kidding. Well, look what Paul said in 2 Corinthians four sixteen to 18 Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. I tell you what, folks, it is the eternal perspective that gives dignity and meaning to suffering and pain. Pain is not meaningless. Eternity and eternal matters gives it great dignity and great meaning and great purpose. So I ask again, when we suffer, what seems more real to us? The pain or the eternal matters of the purposes of what God is doing in my life through the pain? Or when I have a decision to make. It might be what to majoring in college or who to marry or shall we buy this house or that house. What has more significance to us? The temporal matters or the eternal matters? When we're confronted with decision points, we have to ask ourselves, what seems more real? Listen, folks, eternity is real. Eternal matters are real. Universals are real. But because we have not been adding to our Faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge. We don't have a knowledge of those eternal purposes. And the pain and the temporal decision we have to make seems really, 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 really important. In fact, this is one of the biggest problems in the church today. We have, in many cases, a moderately worldly church. Worldliness for the Christian is 
what the world does, only edited of its excesses. And that's about it. We don't have Christians, by and large, who are trying to be as holy as they know how to be. They're trying not to be too worldly. And so we have things like moderate drinking and moderate nudity and sensuality and moderate profanity and moderate greed and moderate materialism and moderate immorality. We just do those things in moderation, you see. We've got them under control. That's not the biblical standard. The eternal God shows us how to view the temporal matters. And the world system, primarily through the media, desensitizes people, including God's people, to the universals, to the eternal matters, by enticing them to an endless pursuit of the particulars. And because we are so engrossed in all of the particulars of the entertainment, primarily of our world, we have little time to pursue the eternal matters. We don't have time to read our Bible. Let alone study it or meditate on it or memorize it to renew our minds. Folks, the entertainment world does not equip the heart to be wise. It equips the heart to be foolish in the proverb sense of the word. And even within the church, the false libertine teaching that Peter was decrying in his day has infected our churches here in America and around the world and has led to a defective misunderstanding of Christian liberty. You know, when Paul talked about that eating of meat, that meat in front of him was a particular. It was something of the temporal world. But whether Paul ate it or not, even though God had no command that he shouldn't, there was no law that said Paul should not eat that meat. But there were universals that told him when he should and when he shouldn't. There were principles he acted on, even if there were not, even if there were no direct commands. And this is part of the libertine problem today that says, if there's not a Bible verse against it, I have Christian liberty to do it. Paul didn't act that way. Paul said, this thing sitting in front of me may be perfectly legal. There's no law against it. But there are certain things that will make it so that I won't eat that while the world stands, even though God has not forbidden it. Because there were universals. There were universal principles. There were eternal principles like this. Paul said, I have a concern for the spiritual well-being of others, and that may be why I don't eat it. There's another reason why I might not eat it, even if God hasn't commanded that I shouldn't. Because it might have a control over my life in some way and I won't be brought under the control of anything. He said, there's another reason I might not eat it. Because it might hinder the effectiveness of the gospel. These are all universals, folks, that determined how he used the particulars. He said, there may be another reason why I don't partake in something because of its sheer uselessness. I just won't bother it has no benefit. And there's another reason I might not partake of it, he says, because it might not edify others. 
Edifying others was a big thing to the Apostle Paul. It's a big thing to Jesus Christ. It's not just, are we not, are we causing these people to go astray? No, he says, what I'm going to be spending my life doing is, I'm not going to be spending my life with useless things. I'm going to be spending my life edifying, building up the body. And that eliminated a lot of things in his life. We've got to understand how this libertine teaching is taking over the church today. This is not what Paul taught. Paul taught, even though there's no command against it, there are a lot of things I will never do because there's some universal principles I apply in that setting, even though God hasn't commanded it. Paul had a biblical worldview. Eternal matters always trumped temporal matters. That's wisdom. That's Christ-likeness. And wisdom is the possession of the one who wants to know Christ because he wants to be like Christ. He's already determined to add arete. He wants to become like Christ and therefore he must know Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, this is part of the phenomenon that we see in students attending a Christian school and yet remaining fools. And I'm not saying all of them do. I'm not saying that by any means, but many, many of them do. There are Christian schools around the country closing by the boatload because they're not having any impact on the young people. That's because the church is so worldly, it's not making any difference. And as I said, they're viewing the facts about God and His Word as particulars to be learned for a test. And they're hearing the Word with no intent to do it. Now, here's something else I want to draw attention to as we're thinking about that. What happens oftentimes with a young person and, and with uh, adults as well is that he has not been pursuing Christ with any kind of seriousness. He's been going along with the flow in his Christian school or his Christian home because he, wasn't done, or he doesn't want to get in too much trouble and he was, doesn't want to go too bad. And so he kind of goes along with the flow. But then he begins to experience a great deal of restlessness and agitation and dissatisfaction in his own soul. And he thinks that the reason he is so empty is because of all the expectations and, and the standards of the people around him. That's not why he's empty. He's not empty because he is under restriction and limitation. He has that sense of emptiness because he's disconnected from life with God. You know, back before the Iron Curtain came down during Reagan's term in office, it was before perestroika in Russia. There were many, many Russian pastors who spent many, many years of their lives and sometimes their entire lives in Russian prison camps and Russian prisons for their, for their faith. These men and women were under severe limitation and restriction. Talk about restriction. Very meager diets, abused and mistreated and beaten. But I tell you folks, those men and women did not sit there in their jail cells feeling empty and restless and agitated. 
Their hearts were full of the grace of God and they were joyful and they were delighted to be a witness for Jesus Christ even in that place. The restlessness and the agitation and the emptiness of the heart is not due to any limitations. It's due to the disconnection of the life from God Himself. You could put the Apostle Paul in prison and beat his back bloody and the man would sing. And folks would stand around and say, how do I get that? That's ministry, folks. He didn't have an empty, agitated, restless soul because he was in prison and had limitations and restrictions imposed on him by the jailer. See, our joy and our delight comes from the knowledge of God. And if you're not pursuing the knowledge of Jesus Christ, you're not pursuing fellowship with Jesus Christ, you and I are supposed to feel empty and restless and agitated. Because we were made to run on God. And when we try to put some other fuel in the tank like worldliness, the engine doesn't work. Many years ago, I got a private pilot's license. And we had to check the owner's manual and find out what kind of aviation fuel went in that tank. Now, a fellow who owns his own airplane could say, well, you know, I own this airplane. I can put anything in it I want. I can put Kool-Aid in it if I want it. And he can. He just won't get very far. That engine has to run on the thing the engineers designed it to run on. A particular kind of aviation gasoline. And the soul of the human being was designed to run on fellowship with God. And if there's no fellowship with God... That engine's going to be spitting and sputtering and stalling out. And, it's, you know, it's not fun to fly an airplane like that. There's no joy and there's no peace in that kind of soul. Folks, we must add to this commitment to become like Jesus Christ. The knowledge of Jesus Christ and His ways and His works and fellowship with Him about that knowledge. We could call that knowledge, that wisdom fellowship knowledge. It is the product of the interaction between a God-seeking man and his Savior through the Word of God. And I tell you what, you will not have a thirst for the Word of God until you first of all decide that you want to become like Jesus Christ no matter what. I remember when God dealt with my heart about that my freshman year. I was so worldly in my thinking and in my ambitions. And God humbled me. I wanted to know God so bad I could taste it. I remember opening my Bible the summer after my freshman year and reading chapter after chapter by the hour. Saying, God, I don't care what you show me in this book. Show me and with your help I will do it. I said, the only thing I need in this life, I need to become wise. I'm still working on that. I, got, I want to think like you think. There's only one way that's going to happen. A lot of time listening to him. 
And you just open, you open your Bible when your heart is dry. You open your Bible when your heart is full. You open your Bible when your body is racked with pain. And when you can't even read, then you listen to somebody reading you the Bible. But you feed on the words of the living God and He brings life to your soul. This is what we're made to run on. And if we ran on it, we would be joyful, peaceful believers. And we'd want everybody else to run on this fuel too. Here's the way Tozer put it. For millions of Christians... God is no more real than he is to the non-Christian. They go through life trying to love an ideal about God and be loyal to a mere principle, but a loving personality, a person dominates the Bible, walking among the trees of the garden and breathing fragrance over every scene. Always a living person is present, speaking, pleading, loving, working, and manifesting Himself whenever and wherever His people have the receptivity necessary to receive the manifestations. It remains for us to think on these truths and pray over them until they begin to glow in us. Now, He's not talking about some kind of mystical experience here. But your heart begins to rejoice over truth. And he said, if we cooperate with him in loving obedience, God will manifest himself to us. And that manifestation, that knowledge of God, will be the difference between a nominal Christian and a life radiant with the light of his face. He's right on target. Folks, we must be word-filled people. I tell the students... When you're trying to solve a problem in life and you don't think of the solution in terms of King James English or whatever version you're using, you're going to lean to your own understanding. You've got to know the Bible so well that when a problem comes up, you think of the solution in Bible words. That's the mind of Christ. And then you've got to do it. This is what it means, folks, to cultivate a God-taught understanding of the person, the work, in the ways of Jesus Christ. And folks, again, what that means is that you and I must have a consistent devotional life in God's Word. If there is not an external reference point that we are going to continually, we will be lost. We will not have joy. We will not have peace. We must continually go back to that Word. And then we must humbly obey it. We must get ourselves in regular attendance at a Bible-preaching assembly to hear His Word preached over and over and over and over and over again to remind us of the eternal matters of the universals. Because as we live out in that world, we're reminded all the times of only of the particulars. And the greatest danger we can have is to live in just the particulars. The universals remind us of what particulars are important and which ones are not. So the question is, do you have a regular, consistent time with God every day in His Word? I'm not saying that every day you spend hours and hours and hours there. And I'm not trying to give some kind of legalistic standard, but if we're going to grow in Christ, 
we are going to be measuring our time in the Word in hours a week, not minutes a week, if we're really going to grow. And that means there are a lot of things we just won't be able to spend our time doing. There are a lot of ball games we probably don't watch. There are a lot of other things, a lot of hobbies that we just don't pursue. There's something more important. We must pursue God. And are you faithful in placing yourself under the regular, faithful preaching of the Word of God in a local Bible preaching assembly every week? The knowledge of Christ is one of the essential marks of the Christ-centered life. You cannot have a Christ-centered life without, the, without being Word-centered because this is where we see Christ. We have to add knowledge to arete, to that decision to become like Christ. I hope if you have become lax in your Bible reading and memorization and study and meditation that you will renew your determination. I must become a word-filled believer. When I try to solve a problem, I want to think of the solution in God's own words. I want to think about examples in the Scripture that He has given with that kind of problem in mind. I want to think like God. That's how you become wise. And folks, again, if we do not do it that way, we will only degress to the fool of Proverbs who's taking his cues from the world only, living only for the desires and the pleasures of the particulars, disconnected from God, and therefore empty and restless and agitated and irritable, instead of joyful and full of peace. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Well, I don't know about you, but that's loaded, eh? Can we turn on the lights here just for a minute? Uh, how many, maybe you're, you're here, maybe this is the first time you've heard uh, one of our studies that we've been going through in the last several weeks. But maybe uh, you're like me and something stuck out. And I wanted to know maybe if there was anybody that wanted to take a minute and say, man, this stuck out to me. I know what I'm going to say, but I wanted to see if anybody else wanted to just say, hey, you know what? This this really touched my heart. This is how God spoke to me. Anybody? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the particulars. We can get so busy with particulars, huh? Bob, did you have one? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. We we I think sometimes we listen, but we don't hear. Right? We're we're in the area where it's going on, right? Audibly, we hear the tones, but there's a great difference there in hearing and obeying and acting on it. Somebody else? Yeah. Yeah. We're designed to run on what we know about God. That's what touched my heart. Uh, years ago, um, Melissa, you'll remember John Barnes was a part of our church, the Kings to him. And I bought his excursion. And uh, it was a limited, I think it was a 2000, it was a diesel. That particular year had a 44 gallon tank on it, which was awesome. You could drive forever. 
And uh, I pulled into a gas station one day, got some fuel, and I headed off to Home Depot, had some errands to run. And I got uh, from my house down to Dunn and Butterfield, and it started going. I look in the rearview mirror, and this white smoke is just like a steam engine chimney. And I thought, well, this is weird. So I started driving down Dunn, and it started slowing down. I give it some more gas. The more gas I gave it, the slower it got, and the more violent the shaking. I thought, oh, my soul. So I turned around, I went all the way back home, barely made it home, got in the driveway, and I'm standing outside, and I'm looking at this truck, and it's just shaking and jumping all over the place. So I turned it off, the whole, out in front of my house is all just white with smoke. And I turned it off, and I thought, man alive, what in the world has happened? So I shut it off, and I grabbed my phone. I was going to call someone and to say, I don't know where to begin or what to do. And I walked by the fuel cap, and I stopped and I went, no way. And I opened it up and I smelled. I had put 44 gallons of unleaded fuel in a diesel truck. Now, if you know anything about that, that is bad news. Yeah, almost. Well, it, it, it literally, I thought it was going to explode. I thought to myself, what have I done? I knew immediately because, you know, they, they put green caps on your diesel tank and they put a green nozzle for morons to make sure that they put that they match colors, you know. And apparently that day, Carlos, I wasn't matching colors. I just was thinking about everything else, going about my day, the particulars, right? Put it in there, and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, you know, that's kind of what happens to our spiritual life. Not kinda. Yeah. Put gas in it. Yeah. It. Guess what? It doesn't run very well. And you know, your Christian life doesn't run very well if you're not putting the right fuel in it. And that really just spoke to me. The soul is designed to run on what we know and the fellowship that we have with God. And that is huge. The The, the, the point that he made about the, not, not the carnality, but the worldliness and the, the temporal mindset, the temporal worldview instead of the universal worldview of today's churches is huge to me. And, and, and the, there's a statement that he made, maybe somebody wrote it down, if you did, I'd love to see your hand, where he said, instead of trying to be the most holy we can be, we're just trying to be less worldly. Remember that statement? That's, that's hugely different. Either I'm pressing toward the mark or if I'm just trying to stay, you know, somewhat over the edge. The old illustration is a, uh, a rich man in England was uh, in need of a new um, valet. And so he was conducting interviews, and each one that he was, a new driver for his carriage, and each one that he interviewed, uh, he would take him on his major route from his uh, mansion and onto the city and then come back. And uh, the first several were trying, they would take the carriage, and, and they would put it right on the edge of the cliff to show how good of a driver they were. And everyone just kept trying to better the other one. they tell, you know, they'd get back and say, hey, I did it this close or whatever. Well, the last one... Uh, took him on the ride and and was as far away as he possibly could get the carriage. And so he went back, and he's the one that got the job. Well, all the other drivers said, you know, how come he got the job? We're, we've been doing this longer, whatever. Said, all of you were trying to prove to me that you were so good, you could show me how close you could get to danger and still keep me alive. I was interested in the one who could keep me the farthest away from it. It's a huge difference. And when we get entrenched in the particulars, that's just an avenue for Satan to keep us away from being most holy. Amen? Somebody else? That's a good, great point. Yeah. 